I told Christy she really raised the bar with the props. I think that puts pressure on everybody else, but um, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, you heard about the men's pancake breakfast coming up on June 4th. Uh, we are excited that we're going to kind of be rolling out uh, a number of events for men, and uh, there's a sign-up list in the back. If you'll go, uh, actually, to the kiosk table, uh, if you want to sign up old school, right, where you write something on a piece of paper rather than any other electronic digital way, um, we know there's some of you that really want to do that, so make your way out there because we're going to kind of get an account as to how many pancakes we need to start throwing out there. So please, gentlemen, give some serious thought to that and, and uh, keep your eyes peeled for uh, some coming announcements and, and um, uh, notifications, etc., about other things that uh, we're going to be doing over the summer. I'm excited about that. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to launch into Ephesians. Father, we thank you so much for this day. What a beautiful day it is. We thank you for the fact that we can freely gather here, that you're present, that you, you never sleep, you never slumber, you never tire. You have waited for us to awaken, to gather uniquely together, uh, both in person and even online, to worship you and to understand who you are and who we are in light of who you are. And I pray that you'll speak through me as I have nothing to say, but God, your word has everything to say. May our hearts be open. May we be people of the word. And may we leave here different because of our time with you and in your word. And I pray your blessing over this time of teaching in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to guess that everyone in here, and if you haven't yet, you probably will at some point in your life, you have daydreamed about winning the lottery. You thought, wow, and, and you see those, those just numbers, that like, they're like monopoly number numbers. You're just like, you're shocked by it, and you think to yourself, man, what would I do with all that money? It'd just be amazing, and, and, and have you thought about how you'd spend it? You just kind of, again, you're just playing around, right? And, and there's probably some part of us that, that actually thinks life would be better if I won the lottery. And, and in a way, it, it, it probably would. In a way, you probably wouldn't worry about financial matters as much as you might be concerned about them now. Now, certainly there are plenty of stories of the lottery winners who have, imagine this, blown everything. Wow, that's, that's quite an undertaking. But it's still possible. But it's also, as, as the scripture teaches us, that, that the more money you have, the more tempting it is to put money as your God, and, and that actually creates more of a mess than if you didn't have the money at all. But I want to talk this morning about a lottery that you really have a chance, an easy chance of winning. Because most likely, none of us in here, and if you do, come talk to me. Okay, we want to honor God here now, right? <laughs> I just had to have fun with that. But most likely, none of us in here are going to draw the winning ticket. It's just not going to happen. No matter how many times you might try, it's just not going to happen. But this morning, as we start the book of Ephesians, and it's very interesting, Paul writes this letter, and he writes it to a church in Ephesus, which is in Turkey. It's western Turkey. And, and he, he wants, he wants, his purpose is to circulate the letter around the, that area to the churches that are there to encourage them. And Paul begins this letter with, with this amazing encouragement about the lottery, the spiritual lottery that they have won. And what I want to do this morning is we're, we're going to look at this spiritual lottery, and, and I hope that you're blown away by what you can easily win and experience 
Paul started his letter that way. We're going to start our study in, in exactly that same way. So I'm going to ask if you want to get your Bible open to your table of contents or your Bible app. And I want you to find the book of Ephesians, which is in, you see, an Old Testament, you have a New Testament. I want you to find the book of Ephesians is about a third of the way down. And what you're also going to do is you're going to go past another book I want you to know, and that's the book of Romans. Okay, so I want you to look up two places. Romans, I want you to look up chapter 9. So whatever page that corresponds to in your table of contents, get there. And then go to chapter 9 and mark it. And then make your way a few books down after that to the book of Ephesians. And we're going to be in chapter 1. And we are going to be talking about and exploring this idea of a spiritual lottery. Whose payout, my friends, whose payout is infinitely greater than anything that you can see in all the millions that have been... Uh, pushed out and, and promoted at all the different lotteries that maybe you have uh, are in tune to or been aware of. So we're going to start in Ephesians chapter number one. We'll flip to Romans in just a moment. But if you're there, follow along. Remember the first six verses. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. By, by apostle, Paul is saying, I have had an eyewitness account of Christ and he has sent me out. Paul had his, if you recall, when he was, Paul used to persecute Christians. This is what's fascinating about the fact that Paul has written the majority, as God inspired him, the majority of the New Testament. And who, who does God choose to write the majority of the New Testament? Was the one who was a professional at persecuting Christians. And God arrests his attention on the road to Damascus and says to him, Saul at the time was his name. He says, Saul, what are you doing to me? And he blinds Saul, and he sends Saul on this journey that Saul becomes Paul, and Paul sees the resurrected Christ, and Christ sends him out. And so we have a great hero of the faith. Paul is saying, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will, he says, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, he says, praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, I want you to listen to how many times Paul will reference in Christ, in him, through Jesus. How important that it is to this text. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us with in the beloved. So what, what I want to start with is Jesus, or, or Paul is saying, in reference to this spiritual lottery, he, what he's saying is the winning ticket is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the winning ticket involves every spiritual blessing that's the winning ticket. It's not knowing Christ and, or, or knowing about him, being able to answer questions as if you were tested about the person of Jesus and his historicity. It's do you know him personally? Are you in relationship with him? Have you surrendered and submitted your life to him? Is he captain? Is he king? Is he CEO? Or is he just a good friend? Is he a lifeguard that you, you pull off the shelf, you know, when you're in trouble? Because if he's anything other than captain, king, and CEO then you, you don't have the winning ticket. And Paul is saying that this winning ticket, this, this personal relationship with Jesus Christ, gives way to every spiritual blessing. And he says, in the heavens. 
Paul is talking about blessings that transcend and are beyond the mere physical blessings that we are all as creatures of comfort seeking. Paul is saying in the places of your soul where things like acceptance and love and purpose reside that you're searching for and seeking after, that that gets dinged um, inside of you at times, Paul is saying that place, the deep down place where really life is and matters, he says to those who have the winning ticket, you have every spiritual blessing in that area. You have the blessing of love and joy and peace and patience, self-control and kindness. He goes, they're there. They're there for you. They're there to be a part of you. But it comes through the winning ticket of Jesus. Now notice that what Paul says here um, is that we, we have that, um, but it, the, the text that I read to you in verses 4 and 5 are rather challenging. Because they come to those, this, this, these spiritual blessings that are in the heavens, that, that we have access to all of them. Do you notice who they are for? They're for those to whom he has chosen. More than that, to whom he has chosen back before time ever began. That's what he means when he says that we were predestined. So let me just tell you personally, let me pull aside here for a moment and say, it's texts like these that scare people like me. Because God's word is very clear to those who proclaim God's word and who teach God's word. Humbly do so. Don't be flippant about it. You're going to be held to a higher standard. And as I'm studying this and I realize that what we're talking about, what we're getting and what we're bumping into, some of you know, this is the doctrine of election. I'm going to just throw that out there. That God chooses some, he doesn't choose others. And Paul, I mean, he's, he's blasting away with this from the get-go. And, and there was a time in my understanding of this that I would have read over that and gone to some other things that we read as, that we'll read as well. But we can't do that. And I can't do that. And, and certainly, I, I can't explain everything in the way that I'd like to explain everything for many different reasons. One is, I don't understand everything. This, this is a mystery that gets dumped into the Isaiah 55 bucket in my life. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. God says, my ways are not your ways, nor are my thoughts your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways, and my thoughts above your thoughts. And, and, and what God is saying is there's some things, there's, there's a mystery to who I am you'll never understand, and don't try. And, and, and this, is, this is part of it. Now, we have enough to understand, and I think can work with this, but there's a lot of mystery to this, and, and I want to try to unpack it a little bit to give you something practically for this morning and 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 then understand as we go through the book of ephesians but recognize that this has been an issue that has been debated for two thousand years and i'm sad to report i'm not the guy to make it all make sense but the blessings come and 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 we can ask it maybe we can think about this way we just talked about this incredible spiritual lottery all every spiritual blessing in the heavens so the question is, well, what have I won? Well, what does that mean? Well, Paul goes through, in the first 14 verses, he ticks off what the spiritual lottery winnings are. Now, before, uh, well, I'm going to take each one of them, but the first one is going to be the biggest one. This is the one we really kind of have to really understand because it really leads to the others. And that is the first 
uh, winning, if you will, of the spiritual lottery to those who are in Christ, in him, through Jesus, as I just read to you, we are chosen, we are predestined before time even began by God to be in relationship with Jesus. My friends, he chose you. You did not choose him. I did not choose him. He chose you. And notice that it says that he chose you in verse 5. It says that he chose you in love. In love, he predestined us. Love was involved in God's choosing. And, and, and later it says, for himself. Meaning that those who God chooses, he wants them. This isn't any, meeny, miny, mo. You see, God is a God of purpose. And so he has chosen very purposefully. And we know that this choosing purposely, it involves love. But love for what? And that is a really critical question that we're going to answer in just a moment. So what we're going to start with is this idea. We, what we win when we put our faith and trust in Christ, when we're in Christ, in him, in relationship with him, not merely knowing who he is, not a knowledge of him, but we have submitted and surrendered to him, we we receive and have received, and, and even that aspect of it is because God has previously to that time predestined choosing us and awakening in us this reality. And it involves love. Again, we'll come back to that in a moment because what exactly when I say it involves love, love for what? Well, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But I want, us to, I want to explain a little bit this idea, what's called the doctrine of election, where God chooses some, but he does not choose everyone. And to really understand that, i got to start with, I'm going to take you to Romans chapter 3. You're in Romans chapter 9, if you wanna, or you saved a place. If you want to go to Romans chapter 3 real quick, uh, we're going to go to Romans 9 right after that. Paul says this in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. He says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become useless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Psalm 51, uh, David tells us that we're born in sin. We're born with a sin disease. We come out of the womb and our desire is not for God. It is for us. And Paul is driving home this point that no, none of us, I mean, Take the very best person you could ever think of. No one is good before God's eyes in a spiritual sense, in a salvific way, in a salvation kind of way. Nobody's good, and no one seeks God for that purpose. It just doesn't happen. If there's any seeking that happens that really is genuine, something else has happened before that, and I'll come to that in just a moment. But we've got to start with the fact that we're all born with this sin disease. And none of us seek the things of God. We don't desire the things of God. We want what we want for us. And that, my friends, the scripture is very clear, uh, will lead ultimately to our destruction. But when you take Romans chapter 3, now turn to Romans chapter 9. And I'm going to read to you another very challenging passage of scripture. Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 9 are the, the most prominent places in scripture that address the doctrine of election, God's choosing, God's sovereignty over man's free will. And you've heard, maybe you've heard the debate more familiarly with the terms Calvinism, which is election, which is God's sovereignty. 
and Arminianism, which emphasizes free choice, free will, and, and they've been debating uh, for 2,000 years. Not quite that long, but uh, the issue has been out there. Because in Scripture, there certainly are aspects of both. And the question becomes, how do we make sense of it? Remember, the mystery of God we sometimes will not fully understand. But let me read to you from Romans chapter 9. Look at verse 14. The context of verse 14 is that, that Paul has talked about God's cho- choosing. That God chose Israel. Think about it. God could have chosen all kinds of different people groups back in the day, but he chose the Hebrews. Why? Because he chose the Hebrews. God does not give us a reason necessarily for why he chose the Hebrews. And then he talks about as God made a covenant with Abraham, he then passes that covenant down through Abraham's lineage. And he chooses the younger son over the older son. Well, why did he do that? We don't know. You see, back in that day, in that culture, the older son was the one who inherited everything. The, one would, the older son would, would have been the one that you would have expected God to pass the covenantal promise down through. But he doesn't. He passes it through the younger son. And Paul's trying to explain that God does the choosing. And then he follows that up with this in verse 14. He says, what should we say then? Is there an injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. So we take that combined with Romans chapter 3, where we read, where none of us is seeking after God. None of us is doing anything to catch the eye of God. And what I want us to understand first about this incredible Uh, spiritual lottery that God chooses us is that salvation depends 100% upon God. 100%. Our salvation has nothing to do with us. And what I mean by that is we didn't catch God's eye because we were kinder, we were more humble, we were trying harder, we were searching after God. That, That doesn't happen. Romans 3 tells us that doesn't happen. We did not catch God's eye in any way that drew his attention and and in any way necessitated his choosing us. God doesn't say to anybody, I love you because you do X. I love you because you try harder. I love you because you really are generous. I love you because you're really nice. I love you because you're funny. He doesn't do that. He says, I will show mercy to whom... I will show mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it does not depend on human will or effort. Even, my friends, even our faith reply. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, this is central teaching of the New Testament. The Bible says, "For for you are saved by grace through faith. Notice grace comes first, then faith. It's God's grace. God awakens us to the idea that we reach back up to him in faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Even our faith reply, like I said before, when you, when you see yourself searching, God, the things of God become interesting to you. You're drawn to them. My friends, that's not from you. That is a result of God having chosen you, predestined that choice back before you ever were. And the Holy Spirit, Jesus teaches us in John chapter 6, is drawing you in to him. 
because you have nothing to do with your salvation. I have nothing to do with my salvation. And think about it. If it did, if what If you thought God's eye was caught by something about you, if you really thought that, and I know it's really natural to think, well, if God chose me, why did he choose me? Was it my sense of humor? Was it the fact that I really like animals? What what, what was it? Because if we get fixated on that, then that becomes our God. That becomes a thing we have to make sure we keep doing because we might lose the love of God. Do you see how that frees up in you and in me this incredible, perfect love of excellence? Love for you because of who God is, not who you are. Because God chose you. He chooses us just because he loves us. And that's hard for us to think. It's hard for us to get our mind around. He says, my friends, he goes, I chose you because I love you. Why do you love me, God? I love you because I love you. I know at first you're thinking you want God to love you for something. Because you, you, you want some part in this. I, I mean, believe me, back when I wrestled with this doctrine a long time ago, I, I really wanted God to love me for something. I, I thought it would make me feel better. Unique, worth Jesus' effort. And that's just the culture that I've been raised in. It's, it's this idea that we earn and we work and we perform. But with it, you're a hostage to that. God says, I know you want that. I, I, know, I understand why you, you, you desire that, but, but play it out. It doesn't end well. Except the fact that I love you. Because I love you. Be free in that. You can never lose that. It will never be taken from you. Now, the the, the question that comes, well, what about the others? God chooses some, but he doesn't choose everyone. What about the others? That seems unfair. Now, if by unfair you mean treated differently, you're right. But go back through history, and God does not treat everyone equally the same. He chose the Hebrews. He didn't choose the Persians. He didn't choose the Babylonians. He didn't choose the Assyrians. He he chose the Hebrews. Jesus chose 12. Not everybody. He chose 12. So so if you mean fair, meaning God God treats everyone the same, well, by that definition of fair, which is really incomplete, nobody's fair. We don't all treat everybody exactly the same. But if you mean just... If you mean, did God do right or did God do wrong, which would be unjust? No, God was just. God did right. Because what about the rest? Well, the Bible tells us, Romans chapter 3 just said, we're all broken. We're all born with a sin disease. And the Bible tells us as a result of that sin disease, we deserve death. We deserve the judgment of God which is eternal damnation in hell. That's what we deserve. That's what we've earned. So what do the rest get? If those chosen get mercy and grace, the rest get justice. They get what they deserve. Now, I know that is a hard thought. That is a hard reality. But understand, God shows his grace and mercy when he chooses some. And to the rest, he shows his justice, which is what he is supposed to do. Now, 
again, I realize the struggle with that. Well, let, let me try, let me use this illustration. I remember as I was studying this, that really was helpful. This is by Dr. James Kennedy, a former pastor um, that I believe has since gone to be with the Lord. He, he used this analogy. He said, what if I had five friends and they decided to rob a bank and I tried to talk them out of it, but, but they didn't listen to me. They, they, just, they just pushed me uh, out of the way and they started running to the bank. And, and I turned around, and I got up off the ground, and I started running and chasing them down. And, and I caught the first one I could catch. I, I tackled them to the ground, and I held on to them, and I wrestled them to the ground, and I kept them on the ground so that only four went in the bank. And they robbed the bank. And in the process of robbing the bank, they, they, they shot and killed a security guard. And, and, they, and they were caught, and, and they were sentenced to life in prison. And the guy that I held down, could he really walk around and say, Hey, because of my heart and because I realized that robbing banks was wrong, I chose not to rob the bank. No. My, my buddy, James Kennedy, would say, my buddy didn't go to jail because I held him down. And the other four can't say, well, because one got off and you could only hold one down, well, then why are we held accountable? Of course you're held accountable because you robbed the bank and you, you killed a security guard in the process. And that's an analogy to think about. When God chooses us, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and that doesn't change the fact that those that he doesn't choose are still held accountable for the fact that they're born broken in sin and they, and they carry out and they live out that sin in a way that God says, I'm going to judge that. And if you're not going to choose to follow Jesus where Jesus on the cross absorbed all of God's judgment, well, then I'm going to judge you because I'm just. And that's what's happening here. You see, you can't, think about this, you can't owe someone mercy. Mercy is something you give as a gift. So we can't say that God is wrong because he doesn't owe everyone mercy. Because if you owe someone mercy, well then really what you're saying is you owe them justice. If they deserve mercy, it, then really what you're saying is it's not mercy that I need to give you, it's justice. And so God is not wrong when he chooses some as a gift with mercy and grace. And he gives the others what they deserve, which is justice. Now, are you with me? I mean, this is hard. Why does God choose only some? Why does he choose only some? Well, let's keep reading in Romans chapter 9. Start with verse 19. In a way, Paul's even answering the, the, the question that's hanging out there in this teaching. He says in verse 19, You will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, if God doesn't choose everybody, and those that he chooses actually turn from their sin and they're forgiven and they, and they live a life that honors God, well, how fair is that to those that he doesn't choose? Verse 20, But who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God, desiring to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath ready for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy? That he prepared beforehand for glory on us, the ones he also called. 
not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Paul is saying, everyone at one point was deserving of God's wrath. And God was just storing up his wrath for that. But what if he decides, before time even began, what if he decides and says, I'm going to save some so that I can display not only my wrath, which is, recognizes my justice and my holiness, but I'm also going to show my love, my grace, and mercy, and that I'm going to save some. And why am I going to do it? Because I want people to see my glory. So why does, why does God save some and not all? Because in God's infinite wisdom, which, believe it or not, is better than yours, it's better than mine, God says, this, this is the way that my glory is best displayed. And when you push back and kick back on that, which I understand the, the desire to do that. Believe me, I understand the feeling of wanting to do that. And Paul does too, but Paul says, hey, Clay, shut up. Who are you to talk back to the one that's forming you? Trust the one who is much more merciful than you, much more wiser than you, loves more than you ever could. Trust, trust him. And that's the answer we get, my friends, for why God chooses some and not all. I know it may not be a good answer that you like, a complete answer, but it is the answer that we must, by faith, take. Now let's look at the other side for a minute. Let's look at the side that says, I I'm sorry, this is just still too much. I really think it just should be entirely 100% up to people's choices. God, do not, don't do this choosing thing. It should be all left up to people and their own personal choices. Well, that doesn't solve the problem either. Because consider this for a moment. Anyone who holds that position would probably say and agree that God wants everyone to be saved. A loving God would want everyone to be saved. And then they would probably also agree to the next statement, and that is, and God is capable and has the strength to save everyone. Yep, yep, okay, I would agree with that. But it's the third statement that gets you. But he doesn't. Why? You see, you don't get away from God's sovereignty. Somewhere in the mix in understanding how salvation works, you do not get away from God's sovereignty. But if we understand it in that God chooses some and gives them mercy and grace and he gives the others what they deserve, which is justice, there's nothing wrong with that, my friends. Because God does not owe anyone grace or mercy. You don't owe anyone what you gift them with. And that's kind of what we have to get our mind around. And when you get away from this idea of election, the reason the doctrine of election is so important, because when you get away with it, salvation can lose the aspect of grace alone. I read to you in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. So, so the understanding is if, if God is 100% in our salvation, if we don't understand the doctrine of election, if we, if we disregard it, then what we're saying is we're saying that somehow, someway, there was something good in the people that he chose and now their salvation in some small way depended upon them. And my friends, that is the antithesis of the central teaching of the New Testament, which is salvation by grace through faith 
alone. That's it. It is God's grace first. It is our faith in response that God gives us even the faith to respond. It is nothing good in us. There's nothing, anything, there's nothing that God sees that catches his eye that he thinks, hey, because of them, I, they're better. They, they work harder. I'm going to choose them. And, and that's the challenging aspect of all this. Without God choosing to save some, salvation becomes a work in a way. And that is very problematic, like I said, to the central teaching of the New Testament. So, all that to say, I'm not going to take that long on the next points, okay? I realize that's a lot. But if we don't understand that and get at least some traction, well, then the other things that roll out after that really don't make sense and, and aren't even possible if God has not done the work that we've just described. So what does that say about our salvation? My friends, do you sense the assurance of your salvation when it's not up to you? When God says, I love you just because I love you. And I've chosen you, not because you caught my eye. I don't want you to have to worry and, and, and be afraid of, of, of whatever it was that caught my eye that you've got to keep performing in that way so that God will keep loving me. No, he takes that pressure right off. He says, I love you because I love you. Do, you. do you sense the assurance in our salvation? Think about what you're spared. God is going to judge those who did not accept the judgment of Christ on the cross. He's going to judge them eternally, separated from him in anguish forever. And he chose you and he pulled you out of that. Man, can, can you start to love a God like that? Can you start to worship a God like that? Can you start to appreciate a God like that? And again, I know you're, there's just going to be that temptation to say, I just really want to find out why God chose me. Don't go there. That is a trap, my friends. It's a spiritual trap. Because the focus is on you, and what we're saying is salvation, the focus is entirely on God. It is all about him and his grace and his mercy. Okay. Boom. What's our, what, what else have we won? Tell them, Dave. What else have we won? Let's look at verse 7. We have redemption in him through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding. In other words, God knew what he was doing. It was his plan from the get-go. He made known to us the mystery of his will, which is Jesus. God coming in the person of Jesus according to his good pleasure that he planned in him for the administration of the days of fulfillment. In other words, for now, for just a time like this. To bring everything together in the Messiah, which is Jesus, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. So... Secondly, the, the second blessing of this incredible lottery is the forgiveness of all of your sins, past, present, and forever. So there's no more guilt and no more shame. Your sins have been forgiven in what the work of Christ on the cross and your faith in that work because God awakened in you. He birthed in you a spiritual receptivity to that. And now, my friends... Your sins are forgiven past, present, and forever. And it comes through the blood of Christ. Now, why did Jesus have to die? Because what Jesus did simultaneously is he satisfied God's justice because God's just. At the same exact time, he satisfied God's love and that he gave up his son so that we could have life. Can you love a God like that? Can you worship a God like that? Can you follow 
and surrender and submit to a God like that. Verse 11, what comes next? We have also received an inheritance. Notice again, in him, predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. So somehow, in a miraculous way, God's sovereignty, his plan, he accomplishes his perfect will through our freely made decisions. Again, that's in the mystery bucket. How does he do that? How, does, how do we have, to have free will at the same time he's working through and ordaining not only the ends but the means through every person he's ever created? How does he do that? That's a question I really want to ask when I get there. But he does it. And he says, I'm giving you an inheritance. And my friends, this inheritance is eternal life with Jesus with a new body on a new earth. Please live with that in mind. Live with the fact that when Jesus comes back, or you go to be with him before he comes back, you're either going to see him come, and, 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 and in a twinkling of an eye, the Bible tells us, our bodies are going to be changed into this glorified body. And, and all of, of, of sin that has marred God's creation in the earth, is, is going to be removed, it's going to be clean, it's going to be restored, it's going to be redeemed. And there's, no, there's not going to be any sin, there's not going to be any pain, there's not going to be any sadness, there's not going to be any anger, there's not going to be any stress. And we're going to live and we're going to see the things that we see now, they're just mind-blowing beautiful, are going to be seen with the eyes of perfection and glorification because of what Jesus has done. And that is our inheritance. I mean, tell me, Paul is loaded for bear here. He is just boom, boom. He's just firing away. Look what you've won. Look what you've won. Look what you've won. In him, in Christ, through Christ. And then, just to give you a little bit more assurance, verse 13 and 14, he says, You have heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed in him, you were also sealed with him, the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Paul's teaching, here it is. This is all you get. Here it comes. Boom, 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 boom. But you know what? It's not merely going to be something mental. This is not just something, some knowledge that you're just going to hang on to. There's something supernatural that happens. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, his empowering presence comes and he lives in you. And he empowers you to not sin. He empowers you to push through uh, things that might make you afraid. He empowers you to, uh, to desire the things of God even more. And to live a life that glorifies and honors him. And so the Holy Spirit, when you, when you really have a true, when, when you put your faith and, cr and, and trust in Jesus alone. The Bible says you're born again. The Spirit of God comes inside of you and you have these new desires these new proclivities, and, and you start to really kind of want the things of God. How does that happen? My friends, that's something supernatural because Romans 3 tells us you would never, ever sought that. You were dead to that. I was dead to that. And God wanted us to have a little down payment so that not only would we believe through what we understand and can comprehend intellectually, but what we experience supernaturally. We have that that gives our faith the assurance that it needs to be the people of God. The full inheritance is coming. It's going to be amazing. What we have now is a deposit in the person of the Holy Spirit. So, with all that said, my challenge for this week is, would you 
would you worship God's glory? I mean, really, would you worship God's glory? Did you note how many times he said, praise the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise his glory. Praise his glory. God wants praise. The, um, the highest purpose that God has is the exaltation of his glory. He wants us to worship him and to praise him. And to tell him in our prayers and to sing to him with our songs how amazing he is. Because he's deserving of nothing less than that. And I hope and pray that this salvo that Paul shoots would prompt in you a, a desire to worship him like you never thought. Like, like worship in, in, in prayer and in song and, and praising him as you obey his commands. Did you notice at verse 4 he says, For he chose us in him before the foundation of this world to be holy and blameless. Holy means to be set apart, to live our lives surrendered to Christ, following him, not the culture, not the world, but him. And to be blameless means to, to be obedient. How can we not respond in that way given what we have been given as an incredible gift? And then lastly, verse 11, notice this, and, and hear this, church. Please hear this. This is, this is the weak link of every church. It is the weak link of many of you in here. And, and at times it has been a weak link for me. Verse 11. We have also received an inheritance in him predestined according to the gospel of the one who works out everything. Oop, verse 13, my bad. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I said before that God ordains the ends. He chooses before time ever even began. He chose. But he didn't choose merely the ends. He chose the means. And you know who the means are? You and me. It's us talking about Jesus to other people. That's the means that God has chosen to pass on to those who he's chosen who have not yet understood that, he's, that they've been chosen. And what we have going into every conversation, we, what we have going is we have the assurance that there are some out there that God has chosen and they are going to respond. You have that, you, 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 you don't have to worry about the fact that well, maybe they're not going to believe me, they're not going to listen to me. And, and take the person who's the furthest away that you're thinking they'll never come to faith in Christ, ever. Remember Paul. I doubt that you're going to share your faith with anyone who has just the day before been killing Christians. I doubt that's going to happen. So what the doctrine of election, God's choosing, what it, it gives us hope. It tells us that no one is too far. So don't give up on anybody. It also tells us to go out and proclaim the message. Because God is working and has preordained before time ever began a person you're going to be talking to. It's going to be awakened, and you're going to be the ordained means to them hearing it about a spiritual lottery and all that they can win. Okay? Let's do that together, huh? Father, thank you for all that you've done for us and all that we have won in Christ. Thank you for what he has won for us. God, I'm humbled. I'm humbled by Paul's teaching. 
I know that my life at times does not at all reflect the reality of all that I have won in Jesus. Forgive me, Lord God, for those times when I, I wanted there to be something about me that did catch your eye because my insecurity was demanding that. But we see in the doctrine of election, we see in your choosing us before time even began, we see that it's all about you and your character and not about us. And that is the safest place for us. Father, I pray we would worship this with you with that in mind and we would not stop. And I pray this in Jesus' name.